Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, the Prime Minister turns to the Emergencies Act as the province of Ontario declares a state of emergency, giving it more powers to take on the truckers. The province accelerates its reopening plan, and as of March 1st, vaccine passports are gone. And the so-called Freedom Convoy continues to do its thing in Ottawa and points beyond. It's Tuesday, February 15th, 2022, so let's get to it. federal government has announced it is invoking the Emergencies Act for the first time ever. JMM, let's have the details. Uh, the government announced this uh, late in the day on Monday. Uh, they are promising that the this is the use of a federal emergency law, uh, much like uh, all 10 provinces have used emergency laws during uh, COVID-19. The federal government says these measures will be uh, geographically targeted and time limited. Uh, The Prime Minister really stressed that uh, on Monday afternoon. Uh, They're designating certain areas as as critical and securing them. These are areas like uh, border crossings and airports. Obviously, with recent events in Windsor, you can understand why uh, border crossings would be important. Uh, They're prohibiting public assemblies in places where those assemblies could constitute unlawful blockades. So obviously, that is a reference to what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, the RCMP uh, are going to be allowed to enforce municipal bylaws and provin- provincial offenses uh, where it is required. There's a process for doing this uh, outside of the Emergencies Act, but I've gotten the sense from some that I've spoken to that it's kind of um, clunky. RCMP officers have to be sworn in as provincial peace officers, and there's a process for that. Uh, Ottawa police are still what's called the, the police of jurisdiction. They still have overall authority in the city. Uh, but now the RCMP will be allowed to uh, participate in more of the the enforcement. Um, And they also uh, gave a warning to uh, these truck owners uh, that their uh, insurance and corporate business licenses are are potentially uh, up for grabs by the government as well. Now, I don't overly simplify this, but I mean, when I was a kid, we called this the War Measures Act. Is this basically the same thing? (laughs) No, no. it is the successor to the War Measures Act. Uh, when you were a kid, the War Measures Act was a World War II era law uh, that gave the government incredibly broad powers. Um, and it's also a pre-charter law, or it was a pre-charter law. Uh, so, I mean, some of the powers that it gave uh, the government uh, in wartime uh, would not survive charter scrutiny today. Uh, this is, uh, the War Measures Act was repealed, the Emergencies Act was put in its place, and so it's, it's a much more... Uh, narrowly focused law. Uh, It does give the government the ability to declare uh, different types of emergencies and uh, has has different powers that they can call on uh, depending on on those emergencies. Uh, You've got uh, a international emergency. There is still a war emergency in the, in the text of the law, but that's not what we're discussing today. Uh, there is a public welfare emergency, which could be a thing like a natural disaster or potentially uh, the federal government might have invoked it uh, in the case of COVID. Um, and then there's what we're talking about today, the, the public order emergency, uh, which is defined as a, a threat to the security of Canada. And um, 
it, it, it looks a lot like other provincial emergency legislation. It gives the federal government the power to make orders that uh, can can force people to do things or uh, can prohibit them from doing things that they would normally be allowed to do. Now, the prime minister announced his intention on Monday afternoon to invoke this new Emergencies Act, or it's not so new. I guess it came in in 1988. But when does it, in effect, take effect? <laughs> The order uh, can take effect immediately, but the government still needs to go to Parliament within seven days for approval. Uh, it has to be voted on by both the House of Commons and the Senate. And if uh, either House of Parliament votes against it, uh, the order is immediately uh, null and void. Uh, this is in contrast to the legislature of Ontario, where uh, the government has a, a much longer time frame to get uh, the approval of MPPs to uh, uh, approve a state of emergency. I wonder if there is any question but that this will go through. The government obviously has a workable majority in the Senate, but it is only a minority government in the House of Commons. Are they quite certain they have the votes there? Well, the NDP have signaled that they will support it. Uh, that is, uh, we're talking history a lot already this po uh, podcast. The uh, the NDP did not uh, support the War Measures Act back in uh, 1970. We're quite critical of it. And um, the... Uh, but but the current leader, uh, Jagmeet Singh, has said uh, he, he will support it. So it looks like uh, it will uh, survive a vote in the Commons and Senate. But, I mean, you're not wrong in the sense that things are very fluid right now, and, and we just don't know. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a number of cabinet ministers at the prime minister's announcement, including his finance minister, Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland. And she uh, made some announcements related to uh, reviewing the relationship with banks, um, and and maybe what people who are suspected of being involved in the blockades may have to do as it relates to money in the bank. What are the details there? Right. So this is one of those times where the, the different jurisdictions uh, are, are helpful. Provinces have lots of uh, broad powers in our federal system, but banks are a federal matter. And this uh, order or, or this this uh, declaration of an emergency uh, federally means that the government can give orders to banks and uh, basically these these crowdfunding sites like uh, GoFundMe and GiveSendGo uh, that have been used to to help fund these protests. Uh, we now know largely, uh, though not entirely, from uh, the U.S. Um, the websites themselves are going to have to uh, report their uh, the, the flows of money to a federal agency uh, that is responsible for tracking uh, its, its, its purposes for money laundering. Um, and the, the agency is called uh, FinTrack. Uh, and, and banks will also be able to freeze uh, uh, checking accounts, savings accounts, whatever, uh, uh, the, these, the accounts that this money is flowing into, uh, banks will be able to freeze it without obtaining a court order. FinTrack, let's follow up on that. The Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, FinTrack. What do they do? Basically, any large or suspicious financial transaction uh, that moves through a Canadian bank uh, has to be reported to FinTrack. Uh, this is how the government tries to control things like uh, money laundering and drug trafficking. Uh, <laughs> if you talk to law enforcement officials, not, you know, 
perfectly successful in in monitoring uh, financial flows, but it's the tool that the federal government has. Um, and now it looks like these internet companies uh, who've been used to to deliver this money uh, are, are going to have to report uh, where the money is coming from to the government. Um, Two two possible uh, things to, to know about here. One is that, uh, you know, it, it's possible that, that people are uh, just breaking the law in terms of moving this money around. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know for sure that that, that is happening, but it's, it's a possibility. So law enforcement could discover uh, crimes that have been committed there, or at least crimes that are worth prosecuting. Uh, but uh, at least as interesting, and I just saw some experts reacting to this on social media before we recorded this, um, simply getting named by these in these kinds of processes by these agencies you could find yourself not able to access a bank account um, and then have to go through potentially a very lengthy and potentially very expensive process of trying to clear your name and of course some of these people aren't going to be able to clear their names because they're guilty of sin. <laughs> um, uh, it's, uh, it's all still very early in this. Um, you know, literally, we're recording this, uh, you know, not very long after the announcement completed. Um, but for people who have been wrapped up in this, either transferring money or especially receiving money and all this, uh, there could be some very long lasting consequences. Well, let's hit on one of the things that I get asked about a lot, which is to say, people ask me, can't Prime Minister Trudeau just order the police to go in there and break all this up? And the answer heretofore has been no. Now, now that the Emergencies Act is being proclaimed, is the answer any different? No, it's not really. You, you heard earlier, uh, we, we mentioned that the RCMP uh, are, are now going to be empowered to uh, you know, enforce municipal bylaws and uh, provincial offenses. But that's a relatively narrow change. The Emergencies Act specifically uh, prohibits the government from uh, trying to, uh, the, the word in the law is derogate, uh, but basically uh, it says that the, the federal government cannot take any of the local policing power away from the province if that, that power is properly located in the province. So the prime minister cannot uh, tell the RCMP to take over the, the entirety of local policing in Ottawa. He cannot tell the, the police chief, uh, Peter Slowly, to start taking orders from a, a federal cabinet minister. Uh, nothing about that relationship uh, changes. Uh, you know, the, the, the Ottawa police will remain what's called the, the police of jurisdiction. They, they will remain, retain overall control. I guess we got to figure out then what this actually means, because Ottawa, obviously, is a city in the province of Ontario, which, thanks to the Ontario government, is already in a provincial state of emergency. So adding a federal state of emergency to things, does that really change anything? Well, the, the financial matters that we've already discussed are, are a big deal and uh, not what I was hearing a lot of people predict even earlier today. Um, that is important. And that's not something that the province could necessarily do on its own. Uh, the other uh, big difference between the provincial emergency law and the federal one is that uh, Ontario's law doesn't allow the government to compel someone to provide a service, but the federal one does. So let's look at the specific case you have in Ottawa, where there are trucks uh, parked, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, three and four uh, deep in, uh, you know, city streets. And uh, local tow truck companies uh, have either uh, refused or declined to work with the city to, to move them. Uh, some of the company owners say they've been threatened with violence. Um, 
the province doesn't have the legal means to force them to provide that towing service. The federal government can, and this is one of the uh, specific examples that the prime minister gave of you know, why the federal emergency power uh, could be helpful in this situation. Well, speaking of specific examples, let me give a specific example of something that I know you love when I do this. And that is to say, John Michael, before you were born, and when I was a kid, I well remember the current prime minister's father bringing in the War Measures Act in 1970, they called it the October crisis, because the what was called the Front de Libération du Québec, the FLQ, uh, was blowing up uh, mailboxes, bombs were going off in mailboxes, they had uh, kidnapped uh, the British Trade Commissioner, James Cross, and they had killed a Quebec cabinet minister, Pierre Laporte, who was the labor minister in the Bourassa government. As a result, Pierre Trudeau brought in the War Measures Act, and there were tanks going through the streets of Montreal. There were soldiers all over the place uh, in the Canadian capital as well. Uh, cabinet ministers had uh, soldiers, armed soldiers from the Canadian forces in their homes, uh, guarding their kids on the way to school, all of that kind of thing. Now, so far, Justin Trudeau has said, he is absolutely not considering any military intervention this time. Does the use of the Emergencies Act affect that at all? No, not really. Uh, as you say, the Prime Minister has said they are, are not considering it at the moment. And, you know, the Emergencies Act isn't actually required uh, for the Prime Minister to bring uh, the military to bear. People may remember the Oka crisis in the 1990s. Uh, that one, I, I am old enough to remember. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, th there was a case where the Canadian forces uh, were brought in, they were used domestically um, as, as part of that uh, Indigenous protest in Quebec. Uh, but that never involved the Emergencies Act. So there there are at least some legal avenues to bring the military into play here that don't involve the Emergencies Act. And, you know, the, what's being discussed, as far as we can tell right now, is not anything like what we saw in the October crisis. You're not talking about, you know, armed soldiers uh, walking the streets enforcing the law. Uh, the most that is being discussed, as far as anybody can tell, is is what's broadly called sort of logistical and support rules, where, as a for example, if, <laughs> if the federal government can't get those private tow truck companies to move those trucks in Ottawa, uh, could the heavy machinery that the Canadian forces have, uh, could that be used to, to pull these trucks out of the capital? Uh, that's the kind of thing that that it seems to be uh, at least still a possibility, but nothing like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Canadian forces, soldiers holding rifles on, the, you know, the front lawn of Parliament. Understood. OK, the big news of this week is obviously the feds bringing in the Emergencies Act. The big news of last week was the Ontario government, the provincial government declaring a state of emergency. We have been down this road before. Let's find out, JMM, what does that entail? Uh, at this point, I think people should probably be familiar with the Emergency Management and uh, Civil Protection Act, the, the EMCPA. Um, this is the law that the uh, province has used multiple times to declare a state of emergency with regards to COVID-19. Uh, this time, uh, they are using it for something that is not uh, at least directly related to the pandemic. Uh, the government has given uh extended powers to the police to clear protesters out of the blockades in both Windsor and Ottawa. Um, so there's two separate 
items here. There's the, the declaration of the state of emergency itself, uh, which was made on Friday. Uh, and then on Saturday, the government published uh, the emergency order, which is really sort of the, the meat and potatoes of what the, the new rules are. And uh, the emergency order basically does two things. It creates a category of places that are defined as critical infrastructure. So this includes uh, ports, hospitals, COVID-19 vaccination centers, and 400 series highways, uh, and it makes it a serious offense to obstruct the use of any of those places. Secondly, it also makes it an offense to obstruct any highway in Ontario. But when people hear highway, you know, we're not talking about freeways here. Under Ontario law, uh, basically any public road is a highway. So if you stop a truck in the middle of a residential street in, let's say, downtown Ottawa, you are violating uh, the emergency order. So you can see that you know this is being written basically to address both the protests at the border crossings like the one in Windsor, uh, as well as the ongoing protests in Ottawa. Uh, one other uh, aspect to all of this, uh, and this is on the, the penalty side of things, uh, the government is uh, at least threatening to confiscate vehicles, uh, fine drivers, uh, people could face uh, $100,000 fines or up to a year in prison. Uh, the other thing that the government is doing, and here's where you just remind people that the government does lots of different things all at once, including, in this case, licensing commercial vehicles and their drivers. Uh, and the premier did say on Monday that, uh, and, and they have the powers in the emergency order to do this, uh, Ontario will be coming for commercials truckers licenses uh, if they don't leave the area of these protests quickly. Now, John Michael, this would not be the Unpoly podcast if we didn't get at least a little bit into the weeds of... Uh, what shall we call it, provincial arcane uh, understanding of how this stuff happens. So <laughs> just out of curiosity, uh, humor me here if you would. Is this something, this state of emergency, which is declared by the province, is this something that the, well, can the premier just do it by himself? Does he need the cabinet to approve it? Does the lieutenant governor have to sign it? How does all that work? We do love our civics lessons on this podcast, so here goes. <laughs> Most of the time, in normal times, uh, the Premier doesn't formally have a lot of power. Uh, you know, whenever you're covering Queen's Park, you talk about Premiers doing things, governments doing things, and 99 times out of 100, what is actually going on is either the legislature is passing a law, and it just so happens that the Premier has the support of a majority of MPPs, or if it's not that, we're talking about the lieutenant governor exercising her powers on the advice of the premier and cabinet. So if the government announces that they are changing the regulations for, I don't know, let's say milk, <laughs> that is done with what's called an order in council. It is literally the lieutenant governor making an order in council with the premier and cabinet. Now, in reality, the lieutenant governor isn't actually allowed to do much except in council with the elected government. So it's a bit of a distinction without a difference. But formally, that is how it goes. Now, you said 99 times out of 100. And we do want to focus on that one. And you and I have been doing this long enough that I feel there is more to say here. So, okay, tell us about the one. Yes, uh, you are correct. Uh, this is one of those rare times where an Ontario law gives the premier himself a power that is separate from uh, the lieutenant governor. In this case, uh, the law reads that uh, the premier can declare an emergency on his own if, and this is a quote, if in the premier's opinion, the urgency of the situation requires that an order be made immediately. Now, if the Premier does that, the Lieutenant Governor still needs to confirm a state of emergency within 72 hours, but the law is written to give the Premier the ability to move quickly. 
Okay, so that is real power. And which of those different options that you just laid out, which is the one that actually happened last week? Uh, last week, it would seem that the Lieutenant Governor, uh, Elizabeth Dowdswell, was on hand and accessible uh, because the state of emergency was declared with an order in council she approved. Uh, and the emergency order that was crafted by the government was similarly approved by the Lieutenant Governor on Saturday morning uh, and came into force uh, a, a bit after 10 a.m. So everything's kosher. Yes, everything is, <laughs> is legal and uh, as, as clear as things are these days. <laughs> okay, good enough. Okay, one of the things we also like to do on this podcast is bring people up to date on some of the events that transpire over the previous weekend in case people in their daily lives were focused on doing other things. So the spotlight, of course, has been on Ottawa for the past two weeks, but it did switch to the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Windsor and Detroit this past weekend. There was some Pretty dramatic footage uh, for a while there. So why don't you bring us up to speed on what transpired in the in the only part of Canada where you actually have to drive north to get to the United States? <laughs> um, if you've never been to Windsor uh, or, or have never thought about this, this part of the province, you know, it's it's basically the most important trade artery in the country. Uh, $700 million a day of trade uh, moves uh, across that bridge going in both directions. Uh, we get parts imports for Ontario's auto sector, for example, uh, as well as uh, you know uh, medical devices and pharmaceuticals uh, for Ontario's hospitals, but other goods flow the other direction. Just incredibly important for both Ontario uh, and Michigan and Canada and the U.S.'s uh, industries. Um, and and of course, you know, with the rise of just-in-time manufacturing, it means that even the a slight delay to uh, that bridge means that, uh, as we saw last week, uh, for example, uh, automakers uh, had to idle their factories because they just ran out of parts. Um, so uh, there were protests last week. Uh, the, the protests continued into the weekend, uh, <laughs> despite the uh, emergency order that was made. Um, and uh, police did eventually clear the bridge. Uh, there were no... Um, injuries that we can see uh, as of Monday. I believe Windsor Police is reporting a few dozen arrests, various charges, including mischief and violating a court order, those kinds of things. Uh, but it did take most of the weekend uh, before traffic actually started crossing the bridge again. It's at times like these that I often remember that the most important words in the American Constitution are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whereas ours in Canada are peace, order, and good government. And the peace and order parts of that have been getting quite a workout lately. It seems that the public has had just about enough of the lack of peace and disorder. So let us pick apart some of the findings from Maru Public Opinion, which came out over the weekend. Apparently, JMM, only 20%, 20% of Canadians surveyed fully support the truckers. And by that, I mean what they're protesting, the methods that they're using to get that message across, 20%. Now, that's the top number. Let's go through this, and why don't you pick up some of the other issues that were raised in the survey? Uh, about two-thirds, or 66% uh, of uh, respondents uh, would have those aiding and abetting drivers uh, in their protests charged with fines and potential jail terms. 58% would have drivers face fines and uh, potential jail terms of up to two years. 54% would immediately uh, support the forfeiture of their vehicles so that it could be impounded and sold if they were convicted of an offense. And 52% would immediately suspend their commercial license to drive any vehicle uh, for a living uh, for up to two years. 
Hmm. So just as with the War Measures Act uh, 51 years ago, there seems to be considerable public opinion on the side of governments doing something more. What adjective do we want to use here? Something more um, aggressive, <laughs> aggressive. Yeah. OK, aggressive. Yeah. And one more interesting number. Sixty two percent believe Canada should work with American military and law enforcement to remove border blockades. So it sure looks from those numbers like the vast majority of the public has had enough. I think if Canadians are uh, not getting their backs up at the idea of the American military participating in, in Canadian law enforcement, that's that's a pretty remarkable finding. Uh, you know, the premier and his government, certainly they know about these numbers, uh, these numbers and other polls that have been banging around uh, the public sphere in the last week. Uh, you know, it's certainly possible that uh, those uh, those results have um, clarified the government's intentions in terms of, uh, you know, declaring the state of emergency. Uh, though, I mean, we, you know, should also just say I, it's difficult for me to imagine anybody at any time protesting in a way that blocked the Ambassador Bridge and, and not having that being taken immediately very, very seriously. Right. It's just such a significant um, detriment to people putting food on their table in the city of Windsor and beyond that uh, agreed you'd have to it'd have to be a pretty what's the expression it'd have to be a pretty uh, hot day in february or cold day in july before you're going to get <laughs> lots of people in southwestern ontario signing on to that um okay let's bring in another voice to our conversation here we want to introduce harrison Lohman, uh, whom we've had on this podcast before he's a producer at tvo and he went down to queens park in toronto over the weekend and spoke with some protesters down there. Harrison, good to see you again. This was, uh, I gather, the second time that you have been, been down to Queen's Park, just sort of checking things out. You were there the first weekend when the, you know, big talk of big convoys coming into downtown Toronto was happening. So uh, come on in here and tell us what you did and what you saw. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. So yeah, this was my second trip down, this time crowd a bit more dispersed. In a lot of ways, I'd say that Toronto has sort of set the Canadian standard when it comes to preventing large encampments, infrastructure to be set up uh, downtown. They blocked up the major arteries headed down uh, to Queen's Park. So you're not seeing things like massive screens like we see in Ottawa, stages, hot tubs, etc., um, still a decent crowd, though. You know, you got Vuvuzela's uh, party-like atmosphere. I saw one Trump flag. I saw a Canadian first flag. Uh, Anti-vax rap was featured there. There was a DJ, and the chorus to one of the songs was We the Fringe. So that was repeated uh, over and over again. Um, you spoke with people there. Uh, tell us, who did you meet? I spoke to a few people. I spoke to a couple from Halliburton who drove three hours with their poodle to come to this uh, demonstration. They were actually vaccinated. A gentleman by the name of Tim had a giant Canadian flag in his hand. He regretted actually getting vaccinated. They said they just did it so they could travel. Um, I spoke to an unvaccinated teacher decked out in a trucker costume surrounding her whole body. She'd made this whole thing out of cardboard. It had a little horn, which she was trying to honk, but it was so cold, it didn't really make much of a sound. Um, her name was Wajna. Um, her family is from Iraq, and she was uh, very angry that she can't fully participate in society. Being unvaccinated, she can't get on a train and visit her family. I come from a country where... Um, where do you come from? I, I come from uh, uh, Iraq, but I'm originally Chaldean, okay? So we're a minority in our country, and my parents left that country for a better opportunity. I know a lot of Eastern Europeans left their uh, communistic countries to come to Canada, and that's why... Um, uh, a lot of people from those places are standing up because they see the signs. 
This is this is not uh, a country that is becoming glorious and free. And Harrison, just to confirm, uh, unlike in Ottawa, no Confederate flags, no swastikas being flown. Uh, so there was there was a "Don't Tread on Me" flag. There was a Trump flag. No swastikas, although first time I went around, lots of talk of we're 10 years away from a Holocaust and these sort of statements being made. You're a member of Legacy Media, right? TVO is a it's a television station. It's an online platform. It's been around for 50 years. You're part of Legacy Media. I am. And we know that from time to time, um, Legacy Media has um, been under somewhat attack by some members of uh, this uh, protest effort. Did you find yourself in any time unsafe? Uh, first time around, <laughs> I outed myself because um, basically the processors were saying, where's the bloody media? They never come to these things. And I literally pulled out my Queen's Park press badge and said, I'm part of the media. I'm here. And they all started filming and were quite angry, very angry, extremely distrustful, Steve. When you're interviewing people, other folks will be recording you to make sure you're not spinning it, editing it, torquing it in their words. Um, never felt unsafe. I'm, I don't know, I'm a, a big guy. I kind of, uh, maybe so, uh, someone else might ha have uh, not felt so safe. Um, but uh, yeah, incredible distrust over there. Um, they're, they're not happy when it comes to media. Some of them laugh at you when you try to talk to them. The big chorus there is end the mandates. I said, to, to what end? Like, what, what do you guys want? They said, end the mandates. Um, and for a lot of them who are, have sort of a libertarian mindset, I don't think they'll be satisfied, Steve or John Michael, until every single COVID government intervention in their lives is gone. You know, they, some of them might be claiming a major victory here, given that Doug Ford has announced that sooner than we initially thought, uh, some restrictions will be rolled back. But some of them will not be satisfied until life looks as it did in 2019, when they'll say people are no longer sheep um, and they will no, no longer be coming to Queens Park. Um, it, it's a real it's a, it's an interesting affair there because they are able to have a show of force there. All, you know, they can have their discussions on Telegram and all these different social media uh, channels, but there's nothing like for them coming together and seeing the faces of other people in these various groups that agree with what they gr agree with. Um, and uh, they're going to keep coming down, I think, until <laughs> things look like it did in 2019 and we're back to normal. Well, as with all things, we shall see. And since you so nicely signposted some of the changes being brought in by Queen's Park, we're going to go there next. So thanks for this update, Harrison. We're grateful. Cool. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Okay, John Michael, generally speaking, as we suggested, there have been some changes coming down from Queen's Park. And all because things on the COVID front seem to be trending in a positive direction. So let's get that update to start with. What's the latest? Sure. Uh, as we've seen for uh, the past several weeks, you know, uh, Omicron is still an extremely virulent uh, variant of concern. It, it caused that enormous spike in cases and in uh, deaths uh, th that we saw in uh, January and, and even you know earlier this month. Um, but cases seem to be coming down and not just because we are testing less. Uh, deaths uh, seem to be coming down. Uh, hospital admissions numbers and ICU use is, is also declining. So all of the metrics that we have been following to try and you know get an idea of how uh, serious the, the situation is in Ontario uh, have been improving uh, over the last several weeks. And so with those relatively positive trends, the Premier announced on Monday morning, that the province is moving up its reopening date, and he made some other announcements as well. So let's get filled in on that. 
So uh, the next step in the plan that was already announced to uh, incrementally remove public health measures, uh, that means that a, a bunch of businesses will be allowed to increase their capacity. Uh, that is going to start on February 17th instead of waiting until February 21st. Uh, so that is uh, bars, restaurants, movie theaters, uh, and, and similar uh, uh, businesses. They will no longer be limited to the 50% capacity that they had been. Uh, sporting arenas, concert halls and live theaters uh, can go up to 50% capacity. Uh, weddings, funerals, and religious services can go to 100% capacity if they opt in to uh, check people's vaccination certificates. Uh, I found that interesting. Um, uh, but otherwise, uh, they are limited to uh, however many people can, can fit in a space while still keeping uh, two meters of uh, physical distancing. Any unexpected or surprising news from the Premier on Monday morning? Right. There were two things that were, were um, unexpected. Uh, one, uh, for any listeners who have kids between 12 and 18, uh, they will now be eligible for third doses. Uh, people can start booking appointments uh, on the coming Friday at 8 a.m. Uh, but more controversially, uh, the government is also planning to end the vaccine certificate system on March 1st. Uh, that means that people who have not been vaccinated against COVID-19 will now be allowed to return to bars, restaurants, and, and other areas uh, that they have been restricted uh, from for uh, a bit more than five months now. And what concerns are you picking up about that? Well, the big question that a lot of the government's critics uh, are certainly raising is whether it is too soon. Uh, the NDP were first out of the gate on Monday morning with a press release saying that the Ford government was uh, caving to anti-vaxxers and calling for the government to to maintain those vaccine certificates. I, I will also note just before we uh, started recording that um, the federal uh, candidate for the conservative leadership, uh, Pierre Poilievre, uh, has uh, already cited Ontario's decision to end the uh, vaccine certificates as uh, a, a data point in favor of the uh, trucker protests and, and the, the, the movement there. So um, as much as the premier has insisted that this is all part of the plan and, and not because of the protests in uh, Ottawa or elsewhere, uh, certainly other people are reading that uh, differently. Sure. And that's understandable. But um well, let me put it this way. Dr. Kieran Moore is supposed to be a guy who is, uh, you know, like Sergeant Friday. It's just the facts, ma'am. And he is not supposed to be influenced one way or another by politics. And Dr. Moore told reporters that the vaccine passports had, quote, served their purpose, past tense. Uh, if he says it, does that mean we can sort of um, can we assume, therefore, that the premier, uh, we can take him at his word. And when he says we were going to do this anyway and the trucker protests had no influence on this decision, do we take that at his word? <laughs> Let me give an unsatisfying answer. Uh, it's complicated. Uh, we know that vaccine certificates played a role in getting Ontario to where we are now, where 90% of people 18 and over uh, have had two doses. But uh, vaccine certificates are not driving people to get third doses because third doses aren't required to get the certificates. Um, and yet, more than three quarters of the people, 60 plus, have had their third doses. Uh, so, you know, the government has a choice. They could either make the vaccine certificate system a, a three dose system, or they could get rid of them. Keeping them around for the sake of keeping them around or because people just want to make life harder for the unvaccinated, that's not really a valid public health reason. <laughs> um, now, the government has made clear, and we've discussed on the podcast previously, they are just not at all interested in, in going that 
mandatory three-dose route. So if they've closed that door, there's really only one other door for the government to walk through. So uh, the government uh, did also announce some uh, significant developments on uh, testing policy last week. And let's pick up on that, because over the past few weeks, the province has not been able to get its hands on as many PCR or rapid antigen tests, the rat tests, as they're called, uh, as many as they've wanted to. And so people have been told if you don't have symptoms of COVID-19, don't bother getting tested. Assume you've got something else, stay home, isolate for a little while, whatever. However, the province has now inked deals with numerous stores, pharmacies, retail outlets, etc., in hopes of getting 44 million rapid antigen tests out to people over the next eight weeks. Talk to us some more about what the plan is there. So the plan now is that uh, people who want to get tested uh, will at least have more access to rapid tests than they have had in uh, the last several weeks. I mean, you, you may recall that uh, the province was able to make two uh, rapid tests per student available uh, to uh, students as schools reopened, uh, but two tests is, is not a lot. It's sort of the bare minimum if you're going to try and, and rigorously test somebody uh, who is uh, symptomatic for to, to determine whether they've got COVID or not. Um, Basically, uh, people will be able to uh, go to stores and uh, they will be allowed to get uh, one box of five tests. Uh, that's sort of per household per visit. Uh, interestingly, the government isn't um, doing anything to keep people from, let's say, you know, making return visits to a store or going to multiple different stores. There's, there's not really any kind of audit or, or, or restriction here. So in theory, and, and I would really encourage our listeners not to do this, but certainly in, in theory, it's possible for somebody to just, you know, walk down the street to, you know, different grocery stores and pharmacies and, and pick up the rapid tests uh, that they want. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, but let's pick up on something else in the meantime. Um, you know, if obviously, if everybody goes out and gets a test all at the same time, this may be a bit of an issue. So uh, some places have to have priorities. Who has the priority with these new tests? Uh, yes, exactly. So the government is, is talking about uh, uh, the, the number of tests they want to distribute uh, if uh, certain priority areas don't uh, uh, soak up that supply first. So hospitals, long-term care homes, retirement homes, places of work where any kind of critical uh, shortage of employees would really uh, threaten uh, the province's economy or well-being, uh, these are places where uh, they will have priority access to these rapid tests uh, to ensure that uh, either that they stay safe or that people can return to work as safely as possible. Now, the province is pretty proud of its record so far. Uh, 76 million tests provided to date, 63,000 sites. That's tops in Canada, as one would expect, given that we're the biggest province. But um, maybe you could break that down for us. So there have been 33.7 million tests in uh, what you would broadly call health and congregate care settings. So that's like hospitals and long-term care homes. Uh, 26 million tests uh, sent to uh, uh, schools and child care centers. Uh, and now the, the province is promising to get five and a half million tests per week out there to the general public uh, through these retail channels. Uh, that is, uh, they're they hoping to keep this going for at least eight weeks. And, and again, that five and a half million number, as I mentioned earlier, is really the, the optimistic uh, upper limit of what they're hoping for. Mm -hmm. And why the need to get back up into the sort of ramping up testing business anyway? 
Well, the Omicron variant, in short. Uh, you know, we were doing uh, around a million tests per week uh, last December. Uh, that's the, the the rapid test specifically. Uh, that jumped to 16 million a week in January during the, the peak of the Omicron wave. Uh, and we've just been burning through tests as fast as we can get them, basically. And was the federal government not supposed to provide all the provinces with a lot of these rat tests? Uh, they were, and they have been, though they, some of the federal deliveries have apparently been delayed. Uh, the province has uh, filled the gap somewhat by uh, procuring its own rapid tests, but um, this is one of those details people might appreciate. Um, in order to keep the provinces from competing against each other for rapid tests, there is a single sort of national procurement agreement that the provinces all agree to use federal procurement. Um, so it's it's provincial money paying for more of these rapid tests, but we're trying to structure it in a way so that when Ontario buys a ton of new rapid tests, that doesn't mean that, for example, people in Quebec and BC go without. Mm-hmm. Now, presumably some people listening to this will have already gone out and, and purchase, not purchase because they're free, but they will have picked up their tests already. But for those who have not, take us through it. What can they do? Uh, well, we've already mentioned some of them. Uh, there's a, a lot of participating uh, grocery stores, uh, pharmacies, uh, over 2,000 sites, all told, across the province. Uh, in the far north, people may know the, the Northern Store is uh, an institution in remote communities uh, that uh, is, is probably going to be, if they haven't received it already, they will be receiving it later this week. Uh, but this is one of those times where we remind people it's a, it's a big old province, and sometimes it's hard to get shipments to Moosonee and Fort Albany. Um, you know, there's also an effort to uh, get them specifically into communities that have had uh, the highest incidence of COVID uh, places with uh, marginalized communities. Uh, there are designated uh, so-called high-priority communities. And if people remember some of the uh, efforts to get um, these specific communities uh, higher vaccination rates uh, during the uh, the spring of last year, it's, it's the similar uh, communities, largely though not entirely around the GTA. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also going to be outreach through things like uh, food banks, community centers, all sorts of things. So uh, lots of of ways to get these tests. uh, And uh, hopefully, I mean, if people uh, want them, hopefully they will find it uh, easier to get them. Now, here's where I want to circle back to the we all have to play nice in the sandbox together idea. And that is you are supposed to go to a store or a pharmacy. You pick up a box for your household, five tests per box. And then you go on your merry way and it's free and that's it. But I want to know how concerned, I don't know, the Ministry of Health is or people in the premier's office are that some people are not going to do that. And in in effect, particularly in the big cities where the stores are close together, they might just jump from store to store to store and take more than their fair share. And you can imagine that like the the government has ways of. Uh, monitoring these things. Uh, And I think of flu shots, right? Flu shots like these tests are also free. They are also delivered by pharmacies. Um, But I have to present my OHIP card to get my flu shot. And that's the the way the government, you know, keeps track of these things. And uh, they are not doing that this time. Uh, We asked about this uh, in a technical briefing that reporters uh, had access to last week. Uh, You know, I was curious, is the government doing anything? And uh, the short answer is no, they, they want to have as few uh, barriers as possible uh, to to get these tests out to people. And so they are, I guess, putting the entire province on the honor system. And uh, we will see 
how that works for them. <laughs> now, I sat in on that virtual technical briefing as well, and I thought you asked some great questions, um, some of which were, why do this? Like, what's the point? <laughs> Is it going to control spread? Is it going to reduce the number of deaths? Uh, what kind of answers did you get to the, to the questions you asked? Right. And I guess I just want to give a bit of context to that question, because, you know, where we are in February of 2022, uh, you know, the Omicron wave is fading. And we know that we've really struggled to, like, test our way out of a pandemic. And so, you know, I was just curious, like, do they, ex what do they expect this uh, you know this this supply of rapid tests to do. Uh, you know, are we going to see you know lower case numbers? Are we going to see fewer deaths? And the answer was basically no. Um, <laughs> that the the response I got was you know people want to know if they have COVID, and that's a totally reasonable thing for a person to want to know. Um, and so the tests are the way that the government is is helping people meet that need. It could make a meaningful difference in whether somebody chooses to, you know, go out or not. Uh, obviously, for people who attend places like schools or have kids in schools, this is a, a really important thing to know, uh, whether they need to isolate or not. Um, and, you know, hopefully people will, you know, behave differently. Certainly, if they get a positive test result, you want them to, to stay home, uh, if at all possible. So, you know, they're not expecting this to work any miracles in the COVID front, uh, but that was the explanation we got. Now, there was one little hiccup in all of this. The announcement went off pretty much without a hitch, but there was one little hiccup. What was that? Yes. Uh, anybody who wasn't already a fan of Walmart is not going to be after last week. Um, Walmart had... Uh, introduced this uh, measure, at least within its own company, um, saying that in order to get the uh, rapid tests, people would have to make a minimum purchase of $35 uh, online through, through Walmart's store in order to get uh, the free uh, test kits. The company said that they were trying to, um, you know, manage the demand for this in a way that was you know, relatively straightforward. But uh, when the premier found out, when the government found out, they in immediately put a stop to it. They said, like, no, free is free. And uh, Walmart, within hours, <laughs> announced that it was changing its policies. <laughs> yeah, free means free, like this podcast, which is free. No minimum purchase necessary to download us, right? Uh, no, absolutely not. Let me sneak one more thing under the wire here. We know yesterday was, of course, Valentine's Day. But also, for those people who follow politics, it's a big day because it's Hazel McCallion's birthday, the former mayor of Mississauga. She turned 101 yesterday, February 14th, which is, you know, that's amazing. Let's just call it what it is. That's amazing. And to celebrate, or I guess observe the occasion, uh, the province of Ontario is going to name the new LRT in Mississauga, the Hazel McCallion Line. And as a public transit geek, uh, I imagine you're on side for that. <laughs> You know, it's a funny thing about being at Queen's Park. It took me a few years to uh, realize, because I mean, even before they officially declared February 14th in Ontario to be Hazel McCallion Day, it, it took me a while to realize that like everywhere else in the universe, it's Valentine's Day. And at Queen's Park, it's Valentine's Day and also Hazel McCallion's birthday. <laughs> <laughs> She's in incredible shape for a person of 101. It's just amazing. She's still got so much game. So happy birthday, uh, Mayor McCallion. Good for you. 
Now, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. We also want to remind you to read our weekly On Poly newsletter, which drops every Tuesday, just like the podcast. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org slash onpoly newsletter. Here's a note that we got from Toronto lawyer Bill Trudell. Mark Twain once wrote, Kindness is what the blind can see and the deaf can hear. No matter which side of the protests we line up on, we certainly are not all in this together. These convoys are devoid of kindness. Political posturing, blame games, rude and vicious attacks on the Prime Minister, whether his approach is right or wrong, people and goods stranded at borders, stress and economic chaos, public streets blocked by monster trucks, foreign infiltration, misinformation, a lack of respect for government institutions, and other people's rights have rendered this an unrecognizable Canada. It, it is time for the still silent majority in this country, persons of influence in all walks of life and professions, former leaders and prime ministers to join in and demand that the blockades end, that protesters return to their homes, and all of our current leaders work together to restore this nation's health with respectful, civil, dare I suggest, kind discourse. I kind of like where that note ends because we are actually in Canada's first National Kindness Week. This was an idea of Senator Jim Munson's to create a week where we all try to be a little more empathetic to each other. Uh, I've got a column up on the website, tvo.org, about the necessity of being kind to everybody, including protesters we disagree with. Maybe if we can do a little bit of it this week, it'll spill out into other weeks. Goodness knows we can all use a little more kindness in our lives. Okay, here now my quote of the week. Let's go back to Doug Ford's announcement last week to signal his intention to bring in a state of emergency in the province of Ontario. Here's the Premier speaking to protesters from Queen's Park. My message to those still in Ottawa, to those at our border crossings, please go home. To those of you who have brought your children, please take them home. I urge you, it's time to leave. Doug Ford, last Friday, before declaring the state of emergency. Uh, and here is my quote of the week. Uh, we mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but uh, this clip comes from Monday morning when the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, was asked why the province was announcing the end of vaccine certificates. Our vaccination numbers uh, are, uh, speak for themselves. Uh, and as a result, uh, we no longer need the proof of vaccination. It served its purpose. Uh, I thank all the businesses and communities that have uh, used it, uh, as well as all the citizens that have shown their QR codes and their passports. Uh, uh, but in our estimation, given where we are in the epidemic, uh, as of March 1st, it will no longer be necessary. That's Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, speaking at Queen's Park on Monday. And that is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>